0: Long years ago, we made it fit with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history. When we step out from the old to the new, it is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger course of humanity.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of India Colonized. I'm your host, Umar Haq. Today, I'm proud to present to you our guftagu with Professor of Religious Studies, Dr. Sher Ali Darin. Guftagu is a series of interviews with authors and scholars of the subcontinent's history, where we discuss their work and its relevance in understanding today's world. We also discuss their journey to becoming a scholar of their own respective field. Dr. Sher has been teaching at Franklin and Marshall College since 2012. He received his doctorate degree in Islamic Studies from Duke University and his bachelor's degree at Malka College. His work centers around Muslim intellectual thought in modern South Asia with a focus on intra-Muslim debates and polemics on crucial questions of law, ethics, and theology. His book, Defending Muhammad in Modernity, was published in 2019 as paperback from the University of Notre Dame Press and was awarded the American Institute of Pakistan Studies 2020 Book Prize. This book presents the most comprehensive and theoretically engaged work to date on what is arguably the most long-running, complex, and contentious dispute in modern Islam, the Bareilvi-Diobandi polemic. The Bareilvi and Diobandi groups are two normative orientations reform movements with beginnings in colonial South Asia, almost 200 years separate from the beginning of this polemic from the present. Its spectre, however, continues to haunt the religious sensibilities of post-colonial South Asian Muslims in profound ways, both in the region and in the diaspora communities across the world. His book Defending Mohammedan Modernity challenges the commonplace tendency to view such moments of intra-Muslim contest through the prism of problematic yet powerful liberal secular binaries, like legal, mystical, moderator, feminist, and reformist-slash-traditionalist. Therian argues that the and the polemic was instead animated by what he calls competing political theologies that articulated during a moment in Indian Muslim history marked by the loss and crisis of political sovereignty. Based on the close reading of previously unexplored print and manuscript sources in Arabic, Persian, and Urdu spanning the late 18th century and the entirety of 19th century, this book intervenes and integrates the often desperate fields of religious studies, Islamic studies, South Asian studies, critical secularism studies, and political theology. Dr. Tareen also co-hosts the popular podcast New Books in Islamic Studies that operates through online through New Books Network and features interviews with authors of important new books in the broader field of Islamic studies. Check out the link below to access this wonderful resource. Here is our conversation with Dr. Sherali Tareen discussing his intellectual journey, the journey of writing this manuscript and indulging with him on how we can engage with his work in the contemporary world, and why it is still relevant for us to understand his work in today's world. Well, uh, Hello and welcome to India Colonize. It's a pleasure having you, Dr. Shaili Threen. Um, so before we start discussing about your absolutely engaging book, uh, Defending Muhammad and Modernity, um, I just want to know a bit about yourself, uh, your career and your intellectual journey, mostly about w- who are the people who influenced you or the books that influenced you, Um, that brought you to where you are right now?
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Omar, for inviting me to this excellent uh, new podcast uh, that you have uh, uh, put together. I think it's a really great idea to have a podcast focused on uh, a specific theme, but that is also a very expansive theme that can uh, generate a conversation among different kinds of uh, scholars in South Asian studies and in different disciplines. I think this is an excellent idea and I wish you all the best for it. Uh, And thanks again for inviting me here. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think uh, your question connects to the kind of book uh, that I ended up writing, Defending Muhammad and Modernity, whereby the aspiration really is to have a um, conversation that brings together uh, scholars of South Asian studies, um, religious studies, Islamic studies, and what I might call critical secularism studies, um, as has been uh, primarily, though not, though not exclusively, um, uh, has emerged from the discipline of anthropology. Uh, so, uh, so to answer your question, and the kinds of intellectual interests that have informed my, my, my work and my scholarship uh, also come from these different um, intellectual universes, so to say. Uh, so, you know, critical secularism studies, of course, the work of Talal Assad and Sammah Mahmood in trying to rethink um, the alleged and often assumed separation and opposition between the religious and the secular, that whole Literature, that whole conversation has been very influential uh, to my work, as uh, this book also uh, testifies. Um, Then, you know, within the field of South Asian Islam, of course, the work of someone like Muhammad Qasim Zaman uh, made possible for uh, uh, younger scholars like myself to do this kind of uh, work in modern South Asian Islam, really paved the way for close readings of the ulama, Muslim scholarly traditions uh, in South Asia, um, uh, my own advisor, of course, Ibrahim Musa and other people in the, uh, the Duke UNC area, uh, Dr. Bruce Lawrence, Carl Ernst, etc. Um, uh, and of course, Dr. David Kilmart and Anna Bigelow, I should also mention here, among others. Um, and of course, South Asian Studies itself uh, has been a very important part of my intellectual journey. Uh, you know, Various historians like Professor Margaret Pernau, uh, I mentioned David Kilmartin here. Um, um, uh, uh, and even, I should mention, you know, some scholars whom I critique in this book have also been quite uh, foundational and formative for me. Professor Barbara Metcalf's work has been very formative and, uh, uh, and influential, even though I am a bit critical of some of her larger arguments in this book. Um, so that's what I would say, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, uh, scholars of South Asian studies, Islamic studies, critical secularism studies, these are the different kinds of intellectual sort of streams uh, that have informed um, uh, my um, intellectual identity, and I really uh, 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 would like to think of myself as someone who operates at the intersection of these uh, different fields uh, that oftentimes don't talk to each other as much as as they perhaps should. Uh, as they perhaps should. The other field I should mention is sort of more classical Islamic studies, is also very critical to my intellectual formation. Uh, so, uh, you know, scholars like Johann Friedman and uh, Dr. Jonathan Brown, Ahmad al-Shamsi, etc. Um rahman of course. Uh, so, you know, the uh, what I've tried to show in this book also is that uh, the classical Islamic tradition is very critical uh, to be able to understand the modern transformations that have uh, come about in, in modern South Asia. Uh, so the pre-modern and the modern has to be in constant conversation with each other. I'll stop there.
1: So that's that's definitely a wide uh, spectrum of uh, disciplines that you have engaged in. Um, so what actually led you to uh, studying religion, um, religious studies, and especially religion in South Asia?
0: Sure. Um, so, you know, in undergraduate, in, uh, when I was doing my bachelor's degree at McAllister College in, uh, in Minnesota, here in the U.S., I had just come uh, from Pakistan. I'm originally from Pakistan, from Quetta yeah. in Pakistan. Um, so, so, you know, like many international students, and I don't mean to stereotype here, but many South Asian students who come to the West, uh, you know, I was an economics uh, major uh, without much of an understanding of the humanities, um, uh, especially not religious studies or philosophy, etc. Um, uh, really, the, it was a class on Indian philosophies that got me excited about the humanities. Um, I still remember as a junior in college, meaning third year. Uh, to get uh, i got very excited uh, after reading shankara and the whole advaita vedanta school and uh, nagarjuna and you know uh, uh, in this kind of a precocious excitement about ideas like emptiness and the emptiness of emptiness etc these were very new ideas for me the idea of the humanities and these philosophical questions of identity etc uh, now that i think back i can understand why to a 19 year old they would they would be quite striking so that's when I actually got into the humanities, to be honest, uh, through Indian philosophy, um, etc. Uh, that I took a class with uh, Joy Lane, um, who's a philosopher of uh, South Asia. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I applied to graduate school, um, I uh, realized that, uh, uh, you know, perhaps South Asian Islam would be a field that I might be able to more thrive in and prepare myself for. Uh, so, you know, I very... Um, uh, coincidentally uh, applied to uh, uh, Duke and UNC without really knowing much about what graduate school is or what it entails. So it was really a lot of serendipity uh, that led me to go to graduate school and I had no idea about uh, what it will entail and certainly had no idea about ulama traditions in South Asia whatsoever. Um, I sort of had to learn what I would call Islamic Urdu, uh, essentially from scratch, and um, Uh, But but it was an excellent journey. And, you know, of course, Arabic and Persian I had to pick up as well. Uh, So, yeah, that's basically how the journey began uh, my intellectual path.
1: So a little of the number of questions that I have, I just want to know about your engagement with uh, multiple languages, like Persian, Urdu, and Arabic. How was it learning and what, like, uh, did you feel, how how did you feel that it opened up a wide range of yeah. resources for you then maybe if you wouldn't have had learned y- those languages?
0: Y- y- yeah, Um yeah, in some ways, uh, the, the philological aspect is quite critical, in fact, also to the to the argument of the book and to the kind of intervention that it tries to make. And it also is critical to to how I got to this topic and how I got, became interested in this topic. Um, you know, as I began to l- read some of these ulama texts, um, uh, in the beginning, it was primarily these reverential texts or what are called malfuzaat, where disciples of a particular scholar record and preserve the sayings and the, you know, uh, stories of, of, their, of their masters, etc. Uh, so they're not that uh, dense or challenging as texts, but even when I was reading that in my early years, early months, I should say, not years, in graduate school, uh, I just had this kind of a, a realization and a, almost an affective response of how uh, interesting this, this uh, discursive universe was. And how unaware I had been of it until this point. So that was this kind of a pause moment of, you know, allegedly, not allegedly, supposedly I'm, you know, from South Asia, grew up there till the age of 18, then moved to, to the US for my uh, education, etc. But this, this tradition seemed so foreign to me. And that actually led me to some kind of self-questioning of how it had, why was it uh, uh, seeming so so foreign And, you know, that made me sort of realize the kind of atrocity uh, and the kind of psychological damage that this three-tiered education system in these post-colonial societies like Pakistan is, this kind of this English sort of uh, medium schooling. And then, of course, you have the sort of public schooling in Urdu. And then, of course, the madrasas or the religious seminaries, etc. So it got me thinking about this very interesting and intriguing tradition that was this kind of an internal other uh, which was in my supposed uh, sort of uh, national language, but that seemed quite uh, different and quite challenging. So anyway, so that got me uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, determined uh, to really get, try to get a handle of this, uh, and got me curious. And then I realized that in order to you know be able to really get into the depth of these discourses and their and their traditions, etc., one has to be able to go uh, uh, prior to the modern moment and to look at the kind of um, the kind of um, uh, sort of the black box, the the the, the kind of um, the sources of the tradition that these scholars imbibe, and then they articulate uh, in the modern moment. And for that, you need to, of course, get into the uh, the Muslim legal tradition, the Muslim theological tradition, the Quran commentary tradition, etc. And for that, of course, really uh, devoting yourself to Arabic becomes absolutely critical. Uh, but at the same time, these scholars also wrote, uh, uh, you know, especially in the early nineteenth century uh, in Persian. So, you know, in fact. You know, I was just looking over the book uh, in uh, this, uh, uh, preparation for this conversation because it's been a while since it got published and I, I don't remember it as well as, it, as I did when I wrote it. Uh, so I realized you know, the first part of the whole book is actually based primarily on Persian sources, which is quite interesting to think about that you know, these scholars also, Persian was a very important part of their lingua franca, at least until the early 19th century and even beyond. So you need to really have that uh, under your belt as well. And you know, the three languages, when you do them together, they reinforce each other. Uh, So so that is what happened. And I would say that, you know, as far as graduate school is concerned, among other things, the philological sort of training and sort of exertion and striving uh, was perhaps the most enjoyable aspect. And that, I think, is here I would sort of play slightly partisan, you know, as much as I would like to think of myself as an interdisciplinary scholar who draws on different disciplines of history, anthropology, etc. But that, for me, is why uh, religious studies, uh, a certain kind of a textual religious studies, Uh, is uh, uh, an important part of my identity that was thoroughly enjoyable and that's become a very important part of who I am as a person as well Uh, but uh, it uh, it, it requires sustained striving but it really does give you good rewards in in being able to navigate uh, a multiple range of sources um, uh, from the modern and the pre-modern eras uh, in in a manner which is um, which does justice uh, hopefully uh, does justice to the complexity of the thought of these scholars
1: that's that's wonderful um but before we can actually start discussing about the journey of you writing this book uh i wanted to know what advice you would give to say prospective uh, students of religious studies or people who want to study religion in south asia uh what do you think are some of the skills that you would suggest that they imbibe yeah. early on uh while starting the beginning to explore the field
0: yeah i think it's very important to to um Um, a few things I would say. Let's let's make it uh, more focused on, say, South Asian Islam, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, because South Asian religion then becomes a much wider category that I don't have the um, expertise to speak about. So I think it's very important. I think one of the most uh, uh, exciting things to be working on South Asian Islam is that one can draw on multiple fields and multiple kinds of scholars and approaches. Uh, uh, That is what makes it exciting, and that is also what makes it challenging. So on the one hand, one is in in conversation with sort of classical Islamic studies um, in terms of, you know, the pre-modern tradition and the different intellectual traditions within Islam. So there is that whole universe. Then, of course, there is the more sort of uh, slightly more theoretically charged universe of South Asian studies with these questions of colonialism. And, uh, you know, is it a rupture or a continuity and, you know, the kind of back and forth on these kinds of questions, how to sort of theorize and think about questions of past and the nation state and and so on and so forth, which of course is a very profitable uh, sort of discussion. Though oftentimes in South Asian studies itself, I mean, although it's a very diverse field, there does seem to be a certain kind of a reluctance to engage with religion or to take uh, religion seriously on its own terms. There is a certain kind of a secularity that is is, uh, sort of um, uh, under the sort of... uh, 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 um, uh, yeah, that that, that somewhat uh, pervades uh, uh, the field without it being very uh, uh, obvious often, but still, it's a very important field to engage with. And then, of course, there is what one might call, sort of, um, for lack of a better term, uh, post-colonial thought or questions of you know thinking critically about categories like uh, the the secular tradition, modernity, etc., uh, that one can draw from anthropology and other disciplines. So, my advice would be to 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 think widely and to not to not feel the pressure. Of getting defensive about the particularity of one's own field, I think it's important to sort of cast the net widely and to to sort of um, enjoy the process of bringing these different things into conversation and to take intellectual risks at some point. And you know, so, so so for example, you know, we'll come to the book in a moment, but the main argument of this book of looking at the Barilvivo and polemic as a reflection of competing political theologies, it's an intellectual risk that I took in making that argument. Some people might agree with it, some people may not. Uh, I could have done something slightly more conventional, but I think it's important to bring these different sort of intellectual disciplines into conversation and then to try to be able to say new things and try to sort of be able to uh, venture into new kinds of archives. So there are these incredible scholars uh, whose thought is crying out for more attention, you know, Anwar Shah Kashmiri, uh, 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 Abdul Hay Lakhnavi, etc., uh, many others as well. So, so, so I would say, you know, um, 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 at the at the risk of using a critic, cricketing metaphor, you know, play on the front foot. You know, uh, be be more uh, sort of uh, creative and 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 uh, 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 and and don't feel defensive about the particularity or the specificity of one's very limited field. Uh, take risks, take intellectual risks. Put these different things into conversation, then see what comes out of it. Um, I think that's what I would, uh, would recommend. And the other thing I would say is really a philological rigor is very, very critical. Uh, I I would not be one of those who would sort of make any kind of boundary markings about what counts as Islamic studies and what counts as religious studies or not. You know, that's uh, none of my uh, business uh, and it should not be anyone's business. Uh, That's just impolite kind of boundary marking of a particular field. Having said that, I would say that if one is invested in the textual traditions of South Asian Islam. You know there are different ways in which one can study South Asian Islam uh, ethnographically, anthropologically. You know different uh, sort of uh, through its literature, etc. So there are different sort of avenues. Uh, South Asian Islam should be taken as a very capacious category. But if one is interested in the textual ulama traditions of South Asia, then I really think, whether the modern period or the pre-modern period, then I really think it is critical to be able to go back and forth between Arabic Persian Urdu at least. Um, uh, with, with some degree of fluency. Um, I, think, I think that kind of philological striving becomes very critical so um, uh, and to enjoy that process again to really enjoy that process and not to see that as a burden but as a, but as something as, as a challenge to relish uh, is, is how I would uh, put it. So I think the mindset has to be uh, one of uh, enjoying these challenges rather than being too defensive about uh, uh, mastering uh, the specific uh, particularity of one's field because that pressure it tends to really dominate graduate school for no good reason. To really, you know, have some kind of a mastery over the field, and one feels this kind of pressure for no good reason. Um, I think that's a very uh, problematic and uh, uh, and non beneficial attitude. Uh, the more one enjoys the process of learning, it sounds a bit cliche, but uh, it is true. The more I think one actually learns and 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 contributes to a field with uh, with confidence, but also with humility. I think the two have to go together.
1: So passion and determination are key to. Uh... Yeah. And and always to be
0: humble and realize there is so much more to be done. And there are so many great scholars out there that, you know, you have to give your own modest contribution and then see what people say.
1: That's that's good. Uh, So uh, to coming to the journey of you writing this book. So uh, what were some of the hindrances that you found while uh, doing this project or uh, how were you able to access these books and, uh, you know, what were some of the benefits of your skills that you had while you were accessing these books or, or sources for, for yeah. this project?
0: Yeah. Well, in, in some ways, I think I was fortunate in that um, uh, when it comes to the religious thought of many of these actors, I mean, there is, of course, is great scholarship that has been done, um, but um, sort of to, to do this kind of uh, close readings of many of these texts, uh, that's something that is what I found missing in the field. I mean, there were some excellent uh, institutional histories, some readings of texts here and there as well, but this kind of close reading and putting these different kind of texts in Arabic, Persian, Urdu uh, into conversation with each other uh, was uh, something that had not been attempted with this kind of detail before. So when you're doing something, something new like that, it uh, uh, can be a challenge, but it can also be something quite exciting. So um, uh, I was very lucky uh, to have uh, done uh, quite a bit of my research at the Punjab University Library in Lahore. Uh, which, for any aspiring researcher in the field of South Asian Islam, is a place I would highly recommend. Uh, it has some excellent untapped manuscript resources in um, all languages, but especially in Persian, uh, that have not been looked at as, as much as scholars uh, uh, should or could. I also really benefited from the Ganjbaksh Library in Islamabad um, uh, that ha- houses uh, uh, Persian sources from South Asian elsewhere. Uh, so those two places were really critical uh, to accessing some uh, less known sources, like, for instance, in one of the chapters I talk about the eyewitness account of uh, someone who went on this jihad movement uh, against the Sikhs in um, what is today um, uh, the, uh, the frontier region, Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa province today, but at that time the frontier region. So uh, this this person who goes and comes back and writes an eyewitness account of this jihad movement uh, against the Sikhs, uh, how it had gone wrong, etc. And it's, um, so that manuscript I was able to access at Punjabi Library, for example, Tariq al-Aimma. So, so yeah, I, uh, but you know, since my, uh, this topic uh, uh, deals with the late 18th and the entirety of the 19th century, um, uh, uh, you know, there are pretty good uh, sources which are available in print as well. But to get to the manuscript sources, I thought uh, I think uh, these two locations in Lahore and Islamabad, the ganjbaksh Library and the Punjabi University Library, uh, were very crucial. And I should actually really thank uh, the staff there uh, for making uh, that possible. And I should also thank, now that I'm um, acknowledging, uh, the American Institute of Pakistan Studies, who extended a very generous uh, uh, fellowship that allowed me to go and spend uh, uh, considerable time in Lahore and Islamabad. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to travel to India as part of this research. I have gone to India personally, but uh, as part of this research. But I think that also is very, very important to bring, uh, you know, uh, sources in um, uh, India, Pakistan, and elsewhere it's called British Library is very critical as well, uh, into conversation with each other. Um, uh, but yeah, there are all these untapped manuscripts that are out there. Uh, if we think that we enjoy a, uh, an in-depth knowledge of this tradition, we are uh, uh, deeply mistaken. Uh, there is a lot out there that needs to be looked at, um, uh, especially when it comes to manuscript resources, and especially in Arabic and Persian.
1: So, uh, did, you, did you, during your visit in India, did you ever get to visit Barylvi or Dioband uh, while you were there personally in India? Did you ever get to come to those cities?
0: You know, I visited India a long, long time ago. In fact, as a, as a young adult, uh, uh-huh. when I was not a scholar, uh, I really wish to go to India, of course, now that I've focused on, um, I mean, I, my topic is 19th century North India. So, I actually, I took a train, this was uh, back in the day, it still exists maybe. Uh, no, I'm not sure in what form, there was this thing called the Pakistan-India People's Peace Forum. So I was one of the young delegates of that. And uh-huh. uh, one year you would have a delegation from India come to Pakistan, the next year from Pakistan to India. So we actually uh, took a train from uh, Amritsar to Calcutta, the Howdah mm-hmm. Mail, I believe it was called. So that actually did pass through North India. And, and I have very vivid uh, recollection of passing through Bareilly, etc. So uh, I, little did I know <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, 25 years or so later, I would write, um, uh, or even more, I guess, years later, I would be writing a, a book that is centered on that on that region. I just remember it being really, really beautiful, especially the sort of field of Uttar Pradesh as we passed through, uh, through that. Uh, but um, uh, at, at that moment, uh, 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 religious studies or these traditions were something that I had no knowledge at all about. I remember being much more invested in uh, the cricket score of India versus South <laughs> Africa. This was January 1997 uh, oh, okay. um, when India was touring South Africa, and I would get out at each station and ask people, "What what is the score?" Thing that you know, as if everyone would know <laughs> what the score is, and people would just look at me, "What what this person is saying?" So no, I had no idea, but I really do wish to go back and, and of course, spend time. I'm in I'm in touch with scholars from there, uh, ulama from from North India, um, from different schools, but uh, um, but I wish to definitely visit back.
1: That's really nice. Um, So, for the sake of our audience, could you like uh, briefly and plainly describe uh, the themes of your book in the project? What exactly your book covers?
0: Yeah. um, So, yeah. um, So, primarily, uh, the the time period that it focuses on is the late eighteenth and the entirety of the nineteenth century, and it talks about these two competing groups of extremely influential, prolific, and arguably uh, sort of the most um, influential and prolific groups of scholars in in modern South Asia. Um, And the book details an intra-Muslim debate which often took the form of a polemic uh, that began uh, as a debate between different individual scholars uh, in the early 19th century and then took on a much more group-centered orientation by the late 19th century. Um, And this debate Uh, my argument is that it primarily dealt with the question of how should one understand uh, divine sovereignty um, and its relationship to Prophet Muhammad's authority and charisma and then the everyday ritual practice of um, the masses, the Indian Muslim public. How should one understand this relationship, divine sovereignty, prophetic authority, everyday ritual practice? In conditions when Muslims had lost their political sovereignty. Um, So these two groups are called the Barelvis and the Deobandis, named after these two towns Deoband and Bareli uh, in northern India. Um, Both of these groups of scholars are from the Hanafi school of law uh, uh, that of course dominates South Asia. Um, and, of course, are major Sufi masters as well. The Marelvi is more uh, attached to the Qadri order, the Obandi is more the chishti Sabri order. And in the early 19th century, the kinds of questions that these scholars uh, debated um, in the late 19th century, uh, they were also debated in the early 19th century by these two very influential individual scholars called Shah Muhammad Ismail, who was the grandson of uh, the much uh, esteemed and heralded Shah Waliullah, died in 1762 and Shah Muhammad Ismail died in 1831. And another scholar called Fazliha Khairabadi, um, uh, died 1861, who also uh, uh, is a preeminent scholar, uh, especially uh, uh, known for his works on logic and philosophy, etc. So the whole book is about uh, detailing, uh, in some uh, depth and detail, I hope, uh, the competing positions of these two groups of scholars on uh, questions of theology, law, and ritual practice. And by doing so, uh, try to disrupt a very common understanding of this polemic, a very common uh, notion uh, or way that this polemic is often understood in both academic and non-academic circles as one between uh, between Islamic law and Sufism. So oftentimes, uh, the Dioban scholars and their predecessor, Shah Muhammad Ismail, uh, they're oftentimes understood as these very harsh, uh, sort of Sharia-minded um, conservatives uh, who opposed all kinds of ritual practices that had to do with uh, venerating the Prophet, primarily you know the celebration of his birthday and other rituals. Whereas the other group of scholars, the Barelvi school, who defended such rituals and defended a certain vision of Prophet Muhammad um, as the most beloved of God's creation in modernity are oftentimes presented as this kind of soft Sufi mystics who are the kind of good kind of Muslims, uh, uh, so to say. So I was trying to disrupt this kind of a binary framing. And through that, I was trying to disrupt this larger good Muslim, bad Muslim discourse that pervades uh, especially uh, sort of uh, 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 new imperial think tanks in places like Washington, D.C., etc. Um, so I was trying to complicate this uh, intra-Muslim debate by giving a voice to its, uh, to its uh, actors. And by doing that, I was trying to make a case that the complexity of their thought uh, is such that it brings into question the liberal secular promise, the liberal secular um, uh, 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 attempt and striving at uh, boxing uh, religion and religious actors into binaries like legal, mystical, good Muslim, bad Muslim, traditional, modern, uh, so on and so forth. So, So through that, what I try to do is try to question and challenge the inevitability and the, and the, um, uh, and the operations of liberal secular power. So it is through that, that I contribute to critical secularism studies, but not through sort of a genealogy of secular power per se, as has been done by anthropologists like Talal Asad, Sabah Mahmood and others, but through a close reading of the tradition. And through that, I've tried to bring together the study of Islam, the study of South Asia, and the study of critical secularism studies. Um, So that in some ways would be a short, uh, synopsis uh, of this uh, of this book.
1: That's, that's wonderful. So uh, what made you choose the title uh, for your book as Defending yep. Muhammad in Modernity? Um,
0: sure. So that's a great question. Um, so in many ways, as I was researching this book, I realized that many of the questions that these actors are contesting. So for example, the Prophet's intercession on behalf of sinners on the Day of Judgment, or the question of heretical innovation, or bidah, as it is called, which basically means new practices, new kinds of rituals and beliefs uh, that are, uh, that oppose uh, the prophetic norm. So, uh, so innovating in the prophet's norm in a way that challenges it—that basically is heretical innovation. That again centers on the prophet. Or the question of the prophet's knowledge of the unknown, ilmul ghaib uh, uh, things that uh, you you know are are um, uh, are unknown to anyone except God. What does the Prophet have that knowledge? If yes, what kind? How does he get it? All these theological questions, again, centered on the Prophet. Can God create a second Muhammad uh, or not? What is called Imkan and azir. So I realized all these questions in some ways gravitate and center on Muhammad, uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him. Uh, so why is that the case? And what I realized is that the reason why that is the case is as Indian Muslims become colonized, connecting to the title and the topic of your podcast here, As South Asian Muslims become colonized and lose their political sovereignty, they become ever more eager, anxious, and invested in proffering particular visions of how one should understand Prophet Muhammad in conditions of modernity. And their conceptions of ideal notions of Prophet Muhammad corresponded with their ideal notions of an Indian Muslim individual and an Indian Muslim public or what one might call a moral individual and a moral public that they imagined in conditions of modernity. So uh, so, so, um, so these competing groups of scholars, whom at one point in the book I call all the prophets Indian men, um, uh, you know, they eagerly debated each other's positions. But one thing they had in common, one thing they agreed on is that we ought to aggressively debate and secure and preserve a certain conception of uh, Muhammad in modernity. And that's Basically, Muhammad became the hermeneutical or interpretive key through which they imagined the work of religious reform, through which they imagined what a moral individual and public should look like in conditions of modernity. So, Muhammad in some ways, the body of the Prophet, uh, the physical body as well as a symbolic body, uh, became a synecdoche or stood in for a larger conception of an Indian Muslim individual and public in conditions of modernity. So, that's basically the idea of defending Muhammad in modernity, how how competing conceptions of Muhammad were contested and defended uh, in these new conditions when Indian Muslims had lost their political sovereignty. So in some ways, the point is that Muhammad becomes a synecdoche for sovereign power. In the absence of the state, in the absence of political sovereignty, it is the conception of Muhammad and how he should manifest in the everyday lives of Indian Muslims and how his relationship to God should be understood. Again, that's a relationship that is the conceptual thread binding the book between God, the prophet and the community. Divine sovereignty, prophetic authority, everyday ritual life—this triumph, this uh, this triumvirate relationship—so uh, that uh, 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 conception of normative Muhammad basically is a synecdoche for sovereign power. Uh, so that basically is uh, uh, the uh, how it is connected to the argument of the book as well about competing political theologies so or competing notions of uh, Muhammad and modernity.
1: So, could we say because there was no, um, the Muslims were losing their sovereignty and because of which the um, theologians or basically the ulama, wanted to reign certain control over the community, is that because of which these kind of arguments and contestations uh, actually began?
0: So, there are a few different aspects uh, to that. Um, And a couple of sort of, I think your question is excellent because it allows me to clarify a couple of things as well. So, with political theology, I'm not making a positive argument per se, and neither am I making a historicist argument. It is a historical argument, but not a historicist argument, in that you know, political theology as a category really tries to capture the, the synchronicity between theological discourses and political conditions uh, and, and transformations, especially in these hinge moments like early and late 19th century South Asia, as a community sort of uh, transitions uh, from an earlier political order into a new sort of political order, which shares certain features with the earlier political order as well, as I show in chapter one of this book. Uh, but that also is radically quite different, the British colonial state uh, and the Mughal uh, state. So that's the first one I would make. It's not a causative argument per se, but it is about how in theological discourses invested in how one should imagine God, the prophet and the community, there are competing visions of politics that are embedded in these theological discourses. Um, uh, so it's not causative, but it is showing the synchronicity between theology and politics uh, uh, per se. So for example, you know, if there are a group of scholars who are trying to present a notion of Prophet Muhammad that that emphasizes his humanity, his subservience to the divine sovereign, and through that they critique ritual practices like celebrating the Prophet's birthday, others, etc., uh, who are basically critiquing hierarchies. Uh, 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 spiritual hierarchies when it comes to the relationship between God, the Prophet and the community by presenting a more human Muhammad and other scholars then present and, and contest this notion to say that no, actually divine sovereignty and the Prophet's charisma as the most exceptional, as the most uh, beloved of God's creation, uh, Muhammad as the cosmic, uh, uh, the uh, uh, central cosmic being Um uh, you have to maintain those hierarchies, you have to preserve those hierarchies, you can't eviscerate those hierarchies. So what I was interested in was that in, this, in the seemingly theological debate, what are the largest political imaginaries that are being articulated without them being spelled out as such? So without it being spelled out as a uh, sort of uh, uh, a, a discourse on, on, on politics, Nonetheless, you know, theological discourses are always embedded in these larger political imaginaries. So that's what I was trying to do here. And through that, what I was trying to do was, in some ways, trying to, um, I guess, decolonize these days has become such a such a cliche word that I I, I almost uh, hesitate to use it. Uh, uh, you know, I was recently talking to uh, Professor Salman Sayyid, who's one of the major sort of uh, 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 um, scholars who, who has talked about decolonial studies. Islamic studies was sort of giving it a, um, a comparison that, you know, these days it's like a, a, like a, like a, like a coffee cup at at a Starbucks that everyone is now holding. Everyone is into decolonizing, but let me just still use this term. Um, what I was really trying to do was decolonize the field of political theology somewhat, which has primarily been invested in the question of the, the, the theological foundations of the modern secular state that has been the bread and butter of, uh, Political theology as a field, following Karl Schmidt and the reinvention of Karl Schmidt and the sort of ways in which people have drawn on him more recently. What I was interested in was the question of the the political imaginaries and and understandings that are embedded in seemingly theological discourses. Uh, sort of invert the problem space of political theology somewhat to to be able to. Uh, to, to show that these uh, Muslim scholars from South Asia, these ulama, can also call ways in which political theology has been deployed uh, in Western academic studies, in Western humanities. Um, so, so yeah, so it's not a causative argument, but certainly I think the, when the question is asked, the historical question, why do these debates uh, begin to take steam and really become very uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, heated by the late 19th century, why is it happening in this moment? Again, coming to the main topic of your podcast, why is it happening in the colonial moment? I think my answer to that why is precisely that the loss of Muslim political sovereignty creates the conditions that makes these kinds of debates uh, that have a much older history, uh, that makes them much more publicly contested, that makes them much more vociferously contested, that makes them much more uh, 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 proliferated uh, in a much wider a geographic and intellectual expanse. Uh, so, so that is the sort of moment, this loss of Muslim political sovereignty, that makes this kind of a debate and its intensity possible. The other thing I would say, and that's the last thing I would say in response to your question, is this debate is also made possible by the new conditions of colonial modernity. You know, the the, the printing press, of course, oftentimes people talk about it, uh, that really makes it possible for these kinds of texts to be published and reach the kinds of audiences that it did. Uh, you know, new technologies like the train and and and, and telegraph, etc. Um, uh, makes these kinds of debates possible. But at the same time, as uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll come back to this, but very briefly, I would say uh, another point that I do make in this book is that we cannot reduce these debates to the new conditions of colonial modernity either. They have a much longer history. They have a much longer uh, sort of discursive tradition that they're a part of. Uh, So I am not in favor of collapsing or assimilating these debates to the conditions of colonial modernity either, while also... Uh, really highlighting the the critical significance and importance of the conditions of colonial modernity for making these debates possible in the first place. Uh, So I think both you have to balance a bit, not assimilate, but also highlight how these new conditions of colonial modernity make these debates possible.
1: Well, uh, interesting, but also at the same time, you briefly mentioned about um, how you, through your work, try to deconstruct the binary that uh, binary that is that is often brought by Western authors while dealing with this area of study. So how, is, how exactly do you go about this in your project?
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I would mention that this binary, of course, has been um, uh, deployed for very insidious purposes by, say, new imperial think tanks like the Heritage Foundation uh, and uh, and the Rand uh, uh, corp- uh, is it corporation? Uh, yeah, uh, who wrote these you know papers after 9/11, saying that the Brailvis are the soft Sufis and peace-loving Sufis, and the are the harsh Taliban-like uh, Sharia-minded scholars, which really uh, showed their ignorance of the terrain of uh, South Asian Islam, and it led to some pretty insidious sort of uh, funding campaigns and others. Uh, etc um that paradoxically uh, uh, you can't reduce it to that but paradoxically that has had the effect of making some Barilvi actors uh, uh, somewhat more extremist when it comes to prophetic love and has led to all these kinds of uh, uh sort of prophet uh, problematic um uh, uh, gestures and moves when it comes to preserving prophetic honor and uh, in debates on blasphemy etc but to come to your main question here how do i try to disrupt this binary then Uh, by doing two things. One, by pointing out that, uh, you know, very um, obvious fact that both of these scholars were legal scholars and major Sufi masters. Um, And in fact, if someone were to critique this book in some ways, uh, one part of their intellectual makeup that I don't spend much time on, uh, really because I uh, did not have the space to do that and it would have made this project perhaps a lot uh, messier, and made it uh, made its readability uh, worse. Is the the Sufi uh, writings and the and the role of these scholars as, as Sufi masters, uh, Moulana Sharaf Ali Thanvi of the Dioban school, who is a major protagonist of this book. Oh, of course, Maulana Ahmad Raza Khan. Even Shah Muhammad Ismail, uh, of course, has written some I- I- incredible uh, Sufi texts like Abaqat, uh, uh, which is. Uh, uh, commenting on a work of his grandfather, etc. So, so that's one very important point that these are legal scholars and Sufi masters. So just that obvious fact erases this binary. Second, by really pointing out that you know in Sufism, as any beginner student of Sufism would know, accessing divine reality, the haqika, and to be able to be on the Sufi path or tariqa requires that you follow the dictates of Sharia. So it's sh- Sharia, tariqa, Hakika, right? Uh, uh, sort of uh, progressive hierarchy. Uh, So there is no such thing as following the Sufi path without adhering to dictates of the law. So just by that front, uh, you know, this binary uh, uh, crumbles. But really the way I do that is by really going into the logic of their arguments in some depth. Uh, When they debate the question of the celebration of the Prophet's birthday, how do they do that? Uh, What is the logic at stake? Uh, When they debate things like can one raise one's hand over food on the third day of someone's death or not, which might seem as an arcane squabble of an eccentric elite from the 19th century, but has some profound um, implications for how one thinks about the relationship between individual society and history uh, and time, as I show in the book. Um, so so I, let me answer it very briefly. The way I do that is by really giving a voice to the complexity and the layers and the nuances of their thought by going into their um, texts, by, by, by showing that if you actually look at their texts in some kind of a complex fashion, Uh, this debate has uh, very little to do with some kind of a binary opposition between Sufism and law, which is not to say that some Dioban scholars did not critique excesses in Sufi practices. Certainly they did so, and even Ahmad Raza Khan did so. Uh, That's not the point, but the point being that reducing this kind of, or framing this as a a contestation between law and Sufism is really impoverished. And it's not only Western scholars, by the way, Western think tanks that do that. Even, uh, you know, uh, Muslims um, uh, who are less familiar with this debate, that's the common... Uh, idea that comes to their mind that there's one group who's uh, all for going to the shrines of saints, and another group that 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 uh, that uh, admonishes people for doing so. Things are much more complex than that, and this book really is an invitation to dive into that complexity.
1: I kind of held on to similar kind of ideas before I actually uh, read the book and it completely changed how I thought about these uh, debates between the two, uh, Barelvi and Theobandi polemic. So uh, continuing on that, could you tell us a bit to to our audience about the uh, Barelvi and Theobandi polemic and quite briefly for them to basically grapple with the ideas?
0: Yeah, So, yeah. Um, so in a nutshell, As I've mentioned already, there are these two competing, what I call, political theologies at work in this this polemic. Um, On the one hand, you have a group of scholars, uh, the Dioban School, and then before that, Shah Muhammad Ismail in the early 19th century, who is a scholar who occupies the first part of this book, and his um, debate with Fazliha Khairabadi, who is from the Khairabadian School. For them, they saw the present in which they lived in as enveloped, as encircled by moral chaos and corruption. And for them, the reason for that was the way in which divine sovereignty um, had been compromised by the conduct of the Indian Muslim masses in their daily lives, especially in their ritual and devotional lives. Now, their argument was not that people have uh, you know uh, become uh, agnostic or atheists so they don't realize that God is one. That was not their argument. Their argument was, and in fact, they, they would have said that if this was the case, that would actually have made their jobs much easier to remind you know atheists of God is a job easier than people who actually thought that they were doing pious acts, people who thought that they were doing uh, acts which were uh, good in God's eyes, but in fact, they had been corrupted. Um, and what made their actions corrupted in the view of the urban scholars was that they had elevated the prophet in a manner that often undermined his humanity. And because of that, the, the the radical separation and the radical alterity between the divine sovereign and the prophet had been compromised. So they articulated an imaginary of the prophet that emphasized above all else his humanity. And according to them, the perfection of the prophet's humanity is what was the source of his perfection as a prophet. So they also have a conception of prophetic love. So this should also not be seen, and this perhaps is a point I could have made even clearer in the book, this should also not be seen as a debate between the protagonists of prophetic love and those who don't love the prophet. No, the is also, of course, deeply, deeply love the prophet. But for them, it is precisely in celebrating the prophet's humanity that one shows one's uh, adherence, one's allegiance uh, to the prophet. Um, so uh, that is basically the way in which they thought about the relationship between divine sovereignty, prophetic authority, and everyday life. I'll give you an example in a moment. I'm just giving you the broad uh, mm-hmm. difference between these two schools, and then I'll give you an example which will make things clearer. For the Barilwi school and fazl e before uh, uh, the Barilwi school and the founder of the Barilwi school, malana Ahmad Raza Khan, uh, died 1921, um, for them, di- divine sovereignty, and prophetic charisma or prophetic exceptionality, the status of the prophet as the most exceptional, the most charismatic uh, human uh, were not uh, uh, opposed. In fact, it is precisely by affirming one's allegiance to the prophet as the most exceptional, as uh, the most cosmically central being in the world that one showed one's allegiance to the divine sovereign. So the two were not mutually exclusive or opposed, but in fact, they were mutually entangled. And from that, they also vigorously defended rituals that were meant to venerate the prophet, that were meant to uh, elevate uh, the the prophet in the way that he should have. Um, So that in some ways is the sort of broad differences. Um, Having said that, when you actually look at their debates on particular ritual practices, so one of the ritual practices that I've uh, spent perhaps the most time on in this book, uh, which is the most debated practice among these two schools, was the celebration of the prophet's birthday that, as we know, has been happening since the 11th century of the Gregorian calendar, starting from Fatimid Egypt. It happens until today in all Muslim societies, including in South Asia, even today. Um, so, I'll just give you very, very briefly. and The details are in the book, but you know, very, very briefly, the two opposing uh, arguments uh, of these two scholars. So, for the Dioban scholars, and this is a point I make repeatedly in the book, they did not say that the Maulid or the celebration of the Prophet's birthday is some kind of a bad practice. Not at all. In fact, they said it is a commendable practice because it is meant to venerate the Prophet. Their problem was the manner in which the public, the masses engage in this practice. Their uh, point was that the manner in which they engage in this practice is undermining divine sovereignty and elevating the Prophet in a problematic fashion. Why? And they gave a few reasons for that. One was that, and the main sort of reason, the main sort of legal reasoning, the main sort of... um, sort of, uh, 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 the logic behind their argument was that, you know, as you would know, Omar, that in the Sharia, you have different kinds of practices. Some practices are obligatory, praying, fasting, etc. Some practices are forbidden, you know, cons- consumption of pork, um, uh, alcohol, etc. And then there are uh, these practices that are in the middle, which are neither obligatory nor forbidden, which are called simply permissible. So the Maulid is one of those practices which are neither forbidden nor obligatory. So the argument of the Dioban scholars was that, the Muslim masses are engaging in this practice with such regularity, with such passion, with such discipline, uh, uh, that they have almost turned a simply permissible practice into an obligation. Uh, the, 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 the category they use is that they have they have made this practice simulate obligatory practices, and that simulation is what they found problematic. And how did you know that they have turned it into an obligation? They proposed a very simple experiment um, say one year, someone says, "I'm not going to perform the Maulid. I'm not going to celebrate the Prophet's birthday." So their argument was that if someone does that in their neighborhood, other people would censure that person, would rebuke that person. How dare you not celebrate the Prophet's birthday? So their argument was that when, when um, abeyance or when, uh, when uh, withholding from a simply permissible practices, uh, practice becomes the cause of your community's rebuke and censure, then you know that that community has turned it into an obligation. So the term that the technical term that they use is turning into an obligation that which is not obligatory. Uh, so that was their major argument. The other argument was that you know, people engage in all kinds of corruption. They spend too much money on this kind of a ritual. They do it for affectation. Uh, you know, um, uh, in- interestingly, they, they use some interesting sort of affective reasoning that people... Uh, with good voices come here that can lead to sexual arousal and passions and desires, etc. The use of fragrances is too excessive and so on and so forth. So their argument was that these corruptions have entered into the ritual as well. The opposing argument, the barelvi school, again, like when I said with the Deoband school, uh, it's not as if they said this was a bad ritual, but the way in which people are performing it has made it into a heretical innovation, a bida, uh, an innovation, a new practice, which the Prophet and his companions did not perform in, uh, that in their view was now opposing it. Uh, the prophetic norm, the Sunnah. The Bareilvi school, Ahmad Raza Khan, for example, when it comes to this, this, this ritual, it's not as if that he was completely okay with whatever the masses did. He was also deeply critical of their practice. So this is not a debate between elitists and populists. These are both very elitist scholars who don't think very highly of the masses. They both use this category. The, the masses are like cattle, al-awwamu uh, kal-an'amu, uh, al That 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 the masses are like cattle. Ahmad Khan's argument was that rather than calling this a heretical innovation and rather than completely banning this ritual, what you should do is just remove the corruptions that have been attached to it. If someone is understanding this ritual as an obligation, talk to them, educate them, engage in moral pedagogy. If someone is spending too much money, then you know, erase this corruption. Don't ban the ritual altogether. That was his main argument. And his other main argument, his main sort of, the, again, the, the, the traditional logic that he used In making this point was that um, any practice that God has not expressly and explicitly forbidden in the Sharia, the default value is permissibility. So the maulid, God has not called it forbidden. So who are the Dioban scholars to be calling it forbidden? So his main argument, he turned their argument on its head and said that when God has not called it forbidden and you're calling it forbidden, you are basically uh, overriding God and you're trying to play God. So you are saying that you're trying to preserve divine sovereignty, but in fact, you are the ones who are uh, contravening divine sovereignty, the sovereignty of God that is reflected in the law. So his argument was also based on legal reasoning. The default value of all practices is permissibility and you cannot call it forbidden. If you call it forbidden, you are the ones contravening God's sovereignty, uh, not those who support this ritual. So the point here being that notice that in this debate, I've given you a very, very one small example. are many, many other examples and many other sort of layers of this argument. It's just the, the bare sort of minimum that I've presented here, which also took me at least five minutes to present. Um, both of these scholars are using their understandings of the Islamic legal tradition. Both of these scholars are grounding their arguments in the Islamic legal tradition. Uh, Ahmad Raza Khan, when he's trying to oppose the Uban scholars, he argues that, look, Scholars from across centuries, people like Sayyuti, others across centuries, had no problem with the Maulets. Who are you Indians, uh, scholars today to be calling it a heretical innovation? Ashraf Ali Thanvi responded to Ahmad Raza by saying, if Sayyuti would have lived in India today, he also would have called this a heretical innovation. If they knew what the Indian Muslim masses are doing, they also would have called it a heretical innovation. The point here being that both of these scholars are very invested in, in solidifying, in making their arguments... Um, Uh, uh, credible in making their arguments authoritative by citing precedents from the past, by grounding it in sound Islamic legal reasoning. These are two competing rationalities of tradition and reform. This is not a debate between Sufism and law uh, per se, not between the mystical and the legal, not between populist and elitist, not between conservative and liberal. Uh, And so on and so forth. So so to give you another, to answer your earlier question, this is how I try to disrupt this binary by showing the precise logics of their argument. Uh, And this is just one example of how this debate unfolded.
1: So uh, one of the interesting figures that appealed to me in the book was uh, Shah Muhammad Ismail. And uh, you, you talk about his engagements with the public, and while at the same time his engagements with uh, exclusive circles and his exclusive yeah. engagements, and how it was different from wh- what he used to advise to the public versus what he wrote, say in yeah. uh, Fussy Persian, uh, per se, to to his exclusive group. So, I, if yeah. you could tell us a bit about or give insight into yeah. that one figure, uh, yeah.
0: Of- Thank you very much, and thank you so much for the very close reading of the book that you've done. I really, really appreciate it uh, for your time. Um, Shah Muhammad Ismail is a very critical figure of this book, who, as I said, occupies most of the first part of the book and his debate with Fazli Kharabadi, who's also a very critical figure in this book. Um, And I was precisely trying to disrupt this uh, common stereotype that is often attached to Shah Muhammad Ismail as some kind of a Puritan figure, as someone who was deeply upset with these ritual practices in the 19th century and was just a shock and awe kind of a scholar uh, who only wrote polemically and uh, you know does not have this kind of intellectual density that, say, his grandfather might have had or, say, the later the urban scholars might have had, etc. And the way I try to do that is, again, to bring um, uh, uh, to the fore the different variety of his writings. So, you know, in a text like uh, this one text called Energizing Faith or Fortifying Faith, Taqwatul Iman, his most famous book, uh, published in 1825, which was written in a uh, kind of vernacular Urdu. Um, uh, that book was, uh, yeah, was very, very fierce. It was very polemical. It uh, was written and intended for the masses. And hence it created such a, a furor uh, that you know his sermons were banned in the Jama Masjid in, in Delhi. And he uh, basically is seen in the, in the historiography as someone who divided families in Delhi and uh, in North India. Uh, on these questions, etc. So there is that Shama with a smile. But then another text of his called Bansabi imamat in Persian is written exquisitely uh, refined Persian, in fact, uh, and it is a book on political theory. It's basically a book on um, uh, uh, different kinds of political leaders and leadership, and what is uh, normatively permissible and what is not. And in that book, we see not a maximalist Shama with a smile like the one we see in Takratiliman, but a more minimalist Shama with a smile who, in fact, is fine with even a morally corrupt ruler as long as the distinctive markers of Islam what is called shaair islam remain current in the public sphere. So uh, again, it's a, a much more complex argument that I explore in chapter 4 of the book, uh, is a reading of Mansa B. Imamat but that uh, is his main point, that the distinctive markers of Islam in the public sphere have to remain current and until they are, then he is okay with even a morally sluggish uh, ruler, ruler as long as he's not completely uh, uh, under the a spell of unbelief, uh, in which case, uh, uh, you know, Muslims of that polity have to re- rebel against that, against that ruler. Um, so what I tried to show there was that, in fact, these might seem like, so what is the contradiction there? Someone might look at this and say, this is contradictory, these two kinds of views. But what I tried to show was that, in fact, both of these texts come together in an interesting way, and both of them make an argument for divine sovereignty. Uh, They just come from different places and emphasize different aspects of of that that argument. So both of these books are all about trying to preserve markers of Muslim distinction in the public sphere. One of them, Taqwatul Iman, is more focused on divine sovereignty and these uh, uh, popular practices, and is very critical of them in this very fierce way. The other one is trying to uh, show ways in which a political order the main function of a political order is precisely to preserve these markers of Muslim distinction as well. So the tone is very different. The language is very different. One appeals to special scholars, the other to, uh, is intended for the, uh, the broader public. But they come together in a common uh, sort of uh, argument. And the interesting thing about that argument is that notice how sovereignty or sovereign power is being enshrined in these markers of Muslim distinction, like you know, prayers and fasting and and um, uh, cow sacrifice, uh, uh, for example, according to him and others. Uh, so, how uh, the choreography of Muslim devotional life uh, in the public sphere uh, again comes to stand in for uh, Muslim sovereign power. So, it's not the state that is after. But but preservation of these markers of Muslim distinction. Uh, I also look at his letters in, in, in Persian and also in Arabic uh, as part of this jihad campaign that he launches with uh, Sayyid Ahmed Barelvi, one of uh, not to be confused with the Barelvi order. This millenarian mystic scholar and warrior uh, with whom he collaborates and launches this uh, uh, fatal jihad movement against the Sikhs and gets mem- memorialized for that until today and dies in Bala court in what is today Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa in uh, in uh, Pakistan. Uh, so that jihad campaign, I also look at quite extensively and the, the letters that they exchanged with different rulers in Central Asia, Afghanistan, etc. So that's also a very important part of the intellectual corpus that I look at in this, in this text. Um, uh, and there's other pamphlet called Yakuroza, which is on the whole issue of Can God Lie or Not, which is a fascinating topic, a fascinating text, uh, again in Persian that I also uh, look at. So my attempt was to really bring the Smile and his different complexities and different kinds of registers uh, to uh, the audience. Uh, in this book there is still much more to be done on him especially Sufi writings uh, but I hope that I've at least begun the process of uh, 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 having sh- a more complex uh, notion of Shah Muhammad smile uh, emerge uh, for a Western audience oh,
1: That's sounds wonderful um, diverting a little from the topic I, the first time I came across your work was I think this um, conversation you were having with Dr. Uh, Khasim Zaman about cow slaughter in India and um uh, uh, how the uh, you mentioned about it being a marker of Islam, the Shire Islam, how some of the ulama argued that, you know, it should be maintained. We should not compromise on the sla- slaughter, yeah. but the others were like, for the larger interest, we should. Um, so I- I'm just wondering if we can get the link to that talk, if it's available online, then I would love to put it down in the description for people, if they're interested to uh, have a listen to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think
0: you mentioned this Princeton NES story. I don't think it was recorded, uh, but uh, I think I have given another talk that also talks about this issue uh, mm-hmm. that was for uh, um, uh, uh, Cambridge University, University of Cambridge uh, recently. So I'll, I'll I'll share that link for you, to you. Uh, definitely.
1: You. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I know we're a little short on time, so I'll uh, skip a couple of questions, but uh, one that I majorly wanted to engage with you was about the reforming of religion and the shadow of colonial power, uh, the idea of musluck. Uh, And can you like explain the term Masluk and how these reforms were executed under the shadow of colonial power?
0: Yeah. So, you know, as I said earlier, that I think the conditions of colonial modernity and colonialism and the British colonial state, especially after the 1857 uh, 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 mutiny uh, is very critical for the formation of these uh, schools. And one of the things that happens in the late 19th century is that these individual-based uh, 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 disagreements and debates between different Muslim scholars, between different individual Muslim scholars like Shah Muhammad, Ismail, Fazliya khairabadi etc., take on a much more group-centered orientation. Uh, the Muslim scholars and actually other religious traditions also get divided into different competing groups um, uh, and that of course happens in the Hindu tradition the Sikh tradition as well. Um, So one of the things that the book is trying to show and do here is, and that of course is what makes this an intellectual history, um, uh, at least that's what I would aspire it to to be, is that it is showing ways in which as conditions of colonialism are more and more entrenched in South Asia and in North India especially, how that leads to the intensification of an intra-Muslim debate and polemic. takes on a more group-centered orientation. So that in some ways is the largest sort of uh, sort of canvas through which this, this book is presented, sort of ways in which uh, the entrenchment of colonial power corresponds with the ongoing life of an intra-Muslim debate and polemic and how they correspond with each other. Hence, the first part of the book begins with shifts in sovereignty, shifts in logics of sovereignty from the Mughal Empire to the British colonial state in the early 19th century. And the second part of the book, chapter 6, uh, it starts with this chapter that you're talking about, uh, the reforming religion in the shadow of colonial power. So maslak basically uh, refers to these competing, and the plural is masalik, refers to these competing groups of Muslim scholars. The term itself, of course, comes from the Arabic suluk or conduct, good conduct, ethical conduct and practice. And maslak, of course, etymologically becomes a place of good conduct. You, know, you add the ma next to a uh, 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 syllables that, of course, is the name of a place. Uh, in Arabic. So, the place of good conduct, etc. But in South Asia, I mean, it does take that meaning of good conduct, etc., but it takes on a much more competitive meaning, and it refers to these competing groups of Muslim scholars. What I try to do in Chapter 6 of the book uh, is to really try to make uh, this concept as uh, uh, um, understandable and as effective, uh, effectively understandable for the audience, for the readers, is I describe this term as having three components. Um, um, and those three components are uh, uh, um, uh, knowledge, um, the sources of knowledge, and, and practice. Um, in fact, uh, Umar, it's been a while since I wrote this. I just want to make sure that I can write uh, so this. Uh, uh, yeah, this is, yeah, Maslak is knowledge. Aha. Yes. Knowledge, hermeneutics and practice is how I call it. That's, that's, that's nicer. So, knowledge, hermeneutics and practice. So, basically, the question is, what is authoritative knowledge from the past? What do we consider to be authoritative knowledge? How should one access that knowledge? That's interpretation, hermeneutics. And then, what kind of practice emerges from the way you understand knowledge and hermeneutics? So, the three major groups of Muslim scholars, um, Sunni Muslim scholars primarily, in South Asia in the late 19th century are the Deobandis, the Barelvis, and the Ahle Hadith. These are three major groups of Muslim scholars. So, for the Deobandis and Barelvis, authoritative knowledge, the source of authoritative knowledge is the same. It's the canon of the Hanafi legal school. I mean, they read it in different ways, some texts might be emphasized more than others, but it's a common reservoir, a common source of knowledge, the Hanafi legal school, but one of the four major schools of law uh, in, uh, in Islam. Uh, the one that is most dominant in South Asia, the Hanafi legal school, named after the uh, eponymous founder of the school called Abu Hanifa. So knowledge is the same. But where they differ from each other is in the in the hermeneutics. How should one interpret that knowledge? And then the practice that emerges from it. So how they read sources from the past, how they read sort of luminaries of the Hanafi tradition, how they read these major texts of the Hanafi school, people like Ibn Abidin, this major uh, Democene scholar and others, Um, And then what kind of practice emerges from that? The Ali hadith they differ from both of the Diobandis and Bareilvis on account that uh, they have a different conception of what is normative knowledge. Um, So for them also, of course, they they are very uh, skilled at uh, the the legal canon, etc. but they have a much more of an emphasis on the Quran and Hadith as sources of knowledge. Uh, and I will admit there can be more nuanced readings of the Ali Hadith. And there are some younger scholars I've noticed who are doing some very interesting uh, work here and um, uh, who are also uh, 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 slightly pushing back against the caricature of Ali Hadith as these kind of minimalists who are only about the Quran and hadith. And I appreciate that, that challenge. Uh, I think it can be nuanced, but primarily they do have a certain kind of a uh, focus on the Quran and hadith and a, a critical attitude, let's call it a critical attitude towards the Hanfiith Canon. Um, so the knowledge base is different. Um, uh, uh, even though when it comes to practice they might also be critical of the Maulid celebration of the Prophet's birthday as a Diobandiza but the very knowledge base uh, is is quite different uh, so you know Ashraf Ali Thanvi, for example uses this interesting analogy that I also have in the book that you know Barelvis are like members of one's own family uh, who have gone awry who, who have become misguided the al Hadith were never part of the family to begin with uh, so that's a very sort of interesting and poignant uh, sort of way that he that he puts it So oftentimes the debates between the uh, 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 the Bareilvis and the Ali Hadith and the Diobandis and the Ali Hadith can be even more intense than, say, between Diobandis and Bareilvis. But that's a compact way to understand the differences between these three groups and to understand the concept of Maslach. It's basically about how one thinks about the relationship between knowledge, hermeneutics or interpretation and practice. So that those three things, how do they come together, is what defines these different reform movements or Masalik. Uh, in in the colonial uh, context.
1: Well, well, that's engaging and wonderful. Um, so, uh, just a couple couple questions uh, before we come to the end of the conversation. Uh, I'll quickly go up to asking about. Um, you know how uh, how important is it for us to approach this work or trying to understand, uh, you know, the contestations between these two schools of thoughts, the the Obandi and Bareilwi, and these political theologies, for us to understand current uh, political Islam in uh, South Asia.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the things that I'm trying to show in this book, and in some ways, if we were to really pinpoint in terms of what is the absolute sort of uh, take home point of this this book, what is the one point I would like readers to take from this book, uh, even beyond this argument about competing political theologies etc., is to rethink the very idea of the political and to think about ways in which these questions of practice, these questions about choreography of the body, these questions about really uh, the senses and the affect, uh, you know, uh, uh, should uh, the location where the Maulid is being uh, celebrated or held be fragranced or not? The, uh, food, of course, is very central to these debates uh, and it keeps coming up repeatedly in this book. Uh, uh especially in the context of this ritual of uh, distributing food uh, to the uh, poor of a neighborhood as a way to transmit the blessings from that act of charity to the soul of the deceased on the third and 40th day of someone's death. Uh, so these different kinds of questions and debates that have to do with the body that have to do with what may seem like very uh, sort of um, uh, uh, specific and almost arcane and even for some people petty sort of debates, Um, that have nothing to do with conditions of modernity and progress and and so on and so forth, Then, in fact they're deeply political. And they articulate competing conceptions of the relationship between the individual and the social and competing conceptions of what a moral public ought to look like. Uh, So in some ways, I'm of course heavily indebted here and I'm drawing on and I'm trying to further the insight of uh, Professor Sama Mahmood um, that she articulated most forcefully uh, in The Politics of Piety, her famous 2004 texts, but even in other texts as well, to rethink the question of the political and the category of the political beyond the nation state, beyond electoral democracy, beyond you know uh, things like voting, et cetera. So in that way, I would say that in some ways, these actors, uh, many of them did not directly uh, engage with institutions of electoral democracy. They're also engaged in something deeply political. That's one thing that I would say. Um but on the other hand, you know, even those kinds of scholars and movements we associate more directly with political Islam, like, say, Jamaat-e-Islami and others, etc., they're also deeply invested ultimately in the curation of a moral public. They're also, of course, ultimately invested in curating a certain kind of a notion of the public that aligns with uh, restoring divine sovereignty. know, divine sovereignty is a key category in the thought of Abu'l-Ala Maududi, though he employs it in a very different uh, sense than, than some of the actors here. Uh, Maududi, for example, was deeply enamored with Shah Muhammad Ismail and was deeply influenced and enamored by uh, and inspired by his jihad movements, movement against the Sikhs that he never considered to have failed, even though people, you know, he, uh, Shah Muhammad Ismail had uh, died in it and uh, had was uh, unsuccessful in dislodging the Sikhs, but he considered it to be a first important moment in the, 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 the narrative of South Asian Islam, etc. So there are some interesting interconnections, but what I would say in response to your question is Really, my main contribution is to rethink the question of the political and to think about these seemingly arcane uh, debates as as deeply political and as articulating very sophisticated understandings of the relationship between the individual and the social and very sophisticated understandings of the relationship between normativity, uh, uh, time and history, which is uh, a a theme I was not able to get into in this podcast, but it's there amply in chapters eight and nine uh, of the book
1: um um so, i mean unfortunately because of constraint of time we we have to come to the end of the podcast but i really really wish i mean i think it can go on for another two episodes uh but i really wish i could have engaged more with uh, with the book um if, if if you have time and if if you don't mind there are like sure, two please. more questions that i wanted to discuss please 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 i'll um, be brief
0: i'm sorry i've been a bit um, long in my answers. no
1: no definitely i i completely thoroughly enjoyed your answers um one thing was about uh how can we understand the boundaries of muslim uh tradition you know how are they contested in modernity and uh, the other was also like uh, you know like uh, i i just want to understand how the ulama even to this day kind of hold a certain power uh, over the masses and and the kind of control that they hold over the masses and uh, you know uh, yeah. how is that inherently political yeah even in india and Pakistan how their control over the political ideologies and whom to vote and what to do and political acts of the masses is controlled by the ulema um, how yeah. does this find its roots in in this conversation yeah. Uh,
0: yeah yeah I think you've asked a very good question and um you know, it goes right to the heart of the question of what kind of authority uh, do these scholars yield and have yielded uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in history, in, in, in the modern uh, moment, but also in the pre-modern moment. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes when people talk about the ulama, especially in the context of Pakistan, it is often said that, you know, their authority is greatly exaggerated because they never are able to win the elections and, you know, elections are always won by non-religious parties, et cetera. That's a very common kind of trope. I think what that trope misses is precisely that it is limiting the the, the category of the political to electoral democracy and to things like elections, etc. Um, um uh, even though I think scholars do yield some interesting influence and authority in that domain and sphere as well, I think the power and authority has to do with the whole um, uh, um, desire and anxiety over salvation. So the kind of knowledge that the ulama impart on their pupils, on uh, on uh, sort of uh, the, the, the the masses, is salvational knowledge. Is this whole idea of how to live one's life in a manner that would be conducive to attaining salvation in the afterworld? And to the kind of hyper-liberal or hyper-secular uh, individual that might seem like an, uh, uh, a strange um, uh, desire or anxiety to hold in the modern moment, uh, when seemingly these these kinds of conditions and these kinds of questions have been eclipsed by the rational uh, sort of reasoning of, of modernity, but for many people, for vast uh, number of people, that is not the case. So I think that is in some ways where the authority comes from, this, this deep sense that salvational knowledge is a uh, uh, domain uh, of uh, of discourse that the ulama have some expertise in that is not shared by other uh, members of society, and it is precisely then to, to to control this domain that becomes a very important part of intra-ulama debates. So the interesting thing about this book is that the two groups of scholars whom I am talking about are so similar in the broad outlines. They lived in North India. They share a certain common geography. They share the common institutional space of the madrasa. Uh, They're both under this new yoke of colonial power. Um, uh, They're both Hanafi in terms of the legal orientation. They're both Sufi masters, albeit of different Sufi paths and schools. But despite that, they engaged in this vigorous and vociferous polemic that we reverberates until today, not only in South Asia, but in diaspora communities around the world, in UK, South Africa, the US, Caribbean, etc. So that is interesting. I think what that shows is that precisely because their clientele were so similar, that this debate became so so, so polemical and so, so vociferous. Uh, and I think it's precisely the question of you know, whose understanding of salvational knowledge uh, gets accepted and is deemed to be credible uh, uh, by the masses. And that's precisely the point that this very intriguing figure uh, uh, whom I talk about in Chapter 12 of the book, Haji Imdadullah muhajir Makki, the Sufi master of the Dioband pioneers uh, and Sufi master of many other scholars as well, um, uh, that in fact is the chapter with which the book, uh, in terms of its chronology, began. It, it, it ended up being the last chapter, but that's how I began this 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 uh, this, um, this project. So he tries to bring together these uh, these competing groups of scholars, and his main argument is that, you know, if you engage in these kinds of polemics, the the attitude of the masses towards you can can become. Uh, can become damaged. And he really was very, very uh, strong in his rebuke of the masses that you know you have no business in denigrating scholars of uh, competing schools. This is not your pedigree. So I think it has to do with maintaining a certain kind of a hierarchical organization of society where it is the ulama who get to dictate how salvational knowledge is to be interpreted and how it is to be manifested in the everyday lives of the community. And that's where the authority also uh, comes from. And that authority becomes much more contested when new forms of knowledge come into the public sphere, modern science and Uh, new kinds of rationalities come into the public sphere and that becomes of course very obvious in these debates, uh, ongoing debates about moon sighting during Eid and so on and so forth. So and the more this domain is contested, the more this domain is sort of contested by outsiders, the more I think the ulama have become much more uh, anxious about preserving this domain. So the interesting thing, the last thing I'll say in response to your question, Omar, is that I think in today's world it would be very difficult to, to imagine this kind of an intense but extremely complex, complicated debate among the ulama on this very, very sensitive questions like prophetic uh, intercession or how one should understand the prophet, etc. I think as the domain of knowledge has been more and more contested by outsiders, I think the ulama also have become much more cautious about uh, their internal squabbles uh, and and, and debates. Cautious, but at the same time, sometimes overly violent, not the ulama, but I think the sort of non-scholarly um sort of muslim clerics etc have uh, become perhaps more violent precisely because of their anxiety that we don't get to control uh this salvational knowledge anymore so um so I'll, I'll, there's more complexity there but i'll stop there
1: yeah before before coming to an uh last 10 questions just want to note that um after i read your book i just went on youtube to basically look for videos of these uh debates and uh, most of the ones that like you pointed out as like fierce islamic like muslim clerics who are probably not like as scholarly as the ulama um yeah. debating sitting in massages and like arguing yeah. on top of the tones um throwing yeah. uh you know accusation of blasphemy on each other and it, yeah, nothing, nothing civil about or, or scholarly about the, those
0: arguments. That's interesting. Yeah, because, you know, I, I, I know you want to get to the last question here, but I think that's another thing that I wanted to, I mean, my, my sort of message for the non ulama world is to really get into the complexities and to at least even if you don't agree with their thought, to have some kind of competence some kind of prof- uh, and proficiency in their in the logics of their argument. But for the ulama, of course, who know much more about the tradition than I ever will, my message also was, or for sort of non-ulama religious sort of clerics, etc., that I think this polemic gives also a great example of an intensely fierce, intensely controversial, intensely sensitive debate that was fought out, uh, but yet no shots were fired. Uh, in terms of physical violence, it was, uh, you know, uh, mm. no shots were fired. So I think it gives an interesting example of a complex debate, but yet maintained some etiquette of, uh, of disagreement.
1: Yeah, we can agree to that. Um, so my last question to you was like, uh, what is uh, your current work that you might be working on if you're working yeah. on and uh, what can we be looking forward to from your work and uh, keep an eyes on
0: Thank you, Omar. So I'm currently in the middle of a book, which is tentatively titled the promise and peril of Hindu Muslim friendship, which looks again at uh, intra ulama debates and ulama discourses. Uh, but on uh, the question of Hindu-Muslim relations and friendship uh, that extends from the late 18th century all the way to the middle of the 20th century. And it's uh, currently it's a six chapter book. Uh, I'm sort of 80 percent done with it. So I hope to be done with the first draft by the end of the year, if not before. Um, It basically looks at different uh, different, um, uh, topics like um, Muslim interpretations of Hindu thought and practice, uh, uh interreligious polemical festivals that were organized by the british where you had different hindu and muslim groups of scholars debate each other on questions like miracles etc and then two chapters are focused on the khilafat movement context uh, and debates on hindu muslim friendship that that arose uh, because of um, the the collaboration between the uh, the protagonists of the khilafat movement with uh, gandhi and the indian national congress so this whole debate emerged about uh, Hindu-Muslim friendship and then there is a chapter on cow sacrifice and cow slaughter uh, and uh, implications of that for Hindu-Muslim friendship and the last chapter looks at this interesting category in Muslim thought called reprehensible imitation or tashabbo uh, and Muslim, uh, South Asian Muslim discourses and debates on that and in that chapter I'm particularly interested in uh, the the kind of uh, genealogy of this very interesting intra-Muslim difference in South Asia between the Dioband school and the Aligarh school Sayyid Ahmad Khan and the pioneers of dioban uh, so do, and the book ends with some contemporary examples with you know more recent sort of uh, in india and in pakistan uh, on questions of minority majority relations etc so that is the that is the current uh, book i'm working on and hope to be done with by uh, the first draft if, at least by the end of the uh, by the uh, of the year
1: oh, i'm keenly looking forward to the engagement with your work for and i mean it, it's quite interesting and i'm uh, personally very interested in uh, um looking forward for it to come out so uh thank you so much, Dr Sherley for taking your time and uh joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it and uh you know, as I told you before, it was a dream come true for me to interview you and uh I really hope that I was able to do a good job. I'm really looking forward to learning Omar, it, from
0: you. It was an absolute pleasure uh, to speak with you. And um, I again want to thank you not only for your time in scheduling and to do this interview, but in doing this very careful reading of this book, which I know is very time consuming. So I really appreciate that. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I, uh, I mean, I, the kind of range of questions that you asked were really enjoyable. And uh, I think you are already a maestro uh, podcaster, a, a podcast interviewer and i really wish all the best uh, for this podcast and i hope scholars and students of south asian studies would listen and to will participate uh, in this in this podcast it was a true honor uh, to be in conversation with you thank you so much Omar. for your
1: time. thank you doctor thank you so much thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode we really hope you enjoyed it this brings us to the end of today's podcast if you liked it, please consider subscribing to us on any platform you're listening to us from and share it with your family and friends. Your support means a lot for us. Don't forget to check out our website www.indiacolonized.com that's colonized with an S where we have more such interesting articles, blogs and write-ups just for you. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter or any other social media platform to stay tuned with us about latest updates about our episodes and write-ups. So until next time, stay safe, stay curious.